0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Legacy Judaica. Join the upcoming auction on Sunday, May 30th for a chance to bid on some of the fascinating treasures of Jewish history at LegacyJudaica.BidSpirit.com. And of course, I'll post the link in the the, uh, summary. It should be a very interesting auction, lots of great stuff. I was perusing through the catalog and I found some real treasures that piqued my interest. Um, All Judaica and history lovers will love this auction. I know I'm excited for it and there are some things that I would love to purchase. Um, There's of course old old classics, first printings of all kinds of sfarim, Judaica, letters, but a few things caught my eye. There was a a pamphlet about the groundbreaking of the new Slabatki Yeshiva building in Lithuania in the 1930s, which is a fascinating historical document. Unfortunately, that building uh, was barely used when they finally finished fundraising and, and building it. Um, the war broke out, and the Soviets, uh, who took over that, you know, Lithuania in, in 1940, they closed it down. But the building still exists and still stands, and we visit it when we uh, go on tours. There's also a, a notice, a first printing of Toldis Anche Shame, which is a, a fascinating compendium of profiles of many great rabbis, there's two things that I got, really got a kick out of, a laugh out of. They were uh, auctioning off a first edition of Making of a Gadal, which is not my copy. I'm not getting uh, rid of mine yet. I still need it. So apparently someone else is. And uh, so you can bid on a first edition hard copy of Making of a Gadal. And also the book Pulmus Hamussar um, by Dove, Dove Katz, who wrote the several volume, I think five or six volume, Tanuasa Musr, about the Musser movement. So he wrote another volume of Pulmus Musr, the Musser dispute, which he did on the advice of uh, great Bali Musser, great people. But apparently, the, the, there are others uh, who, who were not happy about it, and it was only published once. Uh, I guess it was exposing too much about the uh, opposition to the Musser movement um, for, for, uh, for some people's uh, comfort. Um, either way, so it's a, a rare edition, and, uh, and that's also going up for auction. There's also a pamphlet that contains the letter, of a letter of the Alta Rebbe, the Balatanya, of Shneri Zalman of Liadi to the Tsar. He wrote a letter to the Tsar. Another letter he wrote to Rebbe Yitzchik of Bardishev, So that's seemed was fascinating. There's also um, a second edition of the Toldess Yaakov Yosef, uh, of Rebbe Yaakov Yosef of Polonia, um, and uh, on blue paper. I'd love to just see how that looks. There's a first and second editions of the Nefesh which, which uh, a few months ago I had an episode. I discussed the differences between those two first edition. I also noticed a very important set, which is very, very hard to get, a complete set of Eilah Ezkara, which is profiles of rabbis who were killed in the Holocaust. And there's all loads of letters from historical figures. Is actually... A letter from Rabbi Rucham Levavitz of the Mir, a letter that he wrote to someone on an occasion. I'm sure that won't go less for ten or twenty thousand dollars. It's also his yard site, Rabbi Rucham Levovitz's yard site, this Shabbos. Either way, so that was just a few things that caught my eye. I'm sure it's going to be a wonderful auction. So check out legacyjudaica.bidspirit.com and, uh, and buy some awesome things. Right now, I'm on a tour uh, in Morocco. Um, which is which is really exciting. So this episode is being recorded in Marrakesh, the ancient Moroccan capital during the various Berber dynasties. It's a great trip, a great group, uh, very exciting, very different, a lot of fun, a lot of fascinating exploration of, of uh, chapters of Jewish history um, that I'm not uh, regularly involved with on a day in, day-to-day basis. So I'm learning all kinds of new things myself and and uh, and it's uh, it's a real it's a real journey. There's some Jewish history soundbites listeners on the trip, so it's really nice to meet some listeners in person and to do things live. Um, so I decided to share a bit of this episode, a little bit about Moroccan Jewish history, with the general Jewish history soundbites community, and hopefully we'll get be together on a trip somewhere someday with uh, each and every one of you out there. Moroccan Jewry has a unique place in. Jewish history. On the one hand, it's it's one of the oldest. It's definitely about you know about two thousand years old. There's all kinds of legends that it's even uh, older uh, or longer. uh, But um, definitely, we have all kinds of archaeological and other evidence that it exists for at least 2,000 years, which is a very significant uh, ancient Jewish community. Its golden age preceded and later coincided with Spain's golden age. mean, um, there was actually much traffic uh, and mutual influence between the two. There were Jews who went from Morocco to Spain, or from Spain to Morocco over the centuries, a lot of mutual influence. Andalusian, which is essentially Spain, um, but it came to be very identified with Morocco, with northern Morocco, with Spanish, the Spanish Jewish community of Morocco, what was later termed the Megorashim, the exiled ones, as opposed to the native of Moroccan Jews who were, for the most part, in the south, who were known as the Toshavim, the ones who were settled there from before. Um, so, so, but, on, but, and in addition to the fact that it was such an ancient and And uh, during the uh, Golden Age, uh, in the early years, it was very influential. But even later, by the 20th century, it was numerically the largest Sephardic community in the world. It peaked at over 200,000 just after World War II. So that's a very significant numerical uh, um, uh, reality um, as it flourished um, at that time. On the other hand, that 200,000 was about half of the amount of the Jews living in Warsaw before the war. Or, said in a different way, it was about a tenth of the amount of the Jews living in New York City at the time. Um, there about 2 million Jews living in New York City at the, around the time of the war. So, in the larger context of the world Jewish population, the demographics would seem to call for a more qualified or nuanced influence on the greater Jewish people as a whole, because they were numerically, even if they were the largest Sephardic Jewish community, but numerically in the larger context, were um, I wouldn't say less significant, but less influential um, beyond, um, you know, the, than their, you know, their, their relative numbers. Um, in addition, even within the Sephardic world, most of the more well-known Torah leaders, lay leaders, over the last several centuries. It came from Baghdad uh, Syria Turkey Greece etc with some notable exceptions who did come from Morocco such as Rav Chaim Benatar the Rav Chaim HaKadosh um, who later on moved to at the end of his life to Italy and then to to, to, to the land of Israel where he's buried and of course also the, Bauch, the Abu Chatzera dynasty the many many rabbis over centuries of the Abu Chatzera dynasty and Ariyideri, among others who were all from Morocco yet the 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 bulk, at least of the more well well known ones, okay, the ones who the collective memory of the Jewish people um, there there were uh, there were they're mostly from other countries within the Sephardic world. So we, it's a bit of a paradox when we try to understand how this works and how this fits into the story, uh, the general story of Moroccan Jewry. Yet yeah, within the collective memory of Moroccan Jewry specifically. And not in the general Jewish world. And in recent years, even beyond, even in the general Jewish world, there were literally an endless number of tzaddikim and great leaders, Torah leaders, who resided in Morocco over the centuries. Endless. Most of whom were completely unknown but in the wider Jewish population, and even after, at the time, at the time of their own life, and even afterwards. I remember today, just today on the road, we passed. Uh, a People, the grave sites of people such as Reb Daniel Hashomer Reb Chaviv Ibn Mizrahi and many many more who are completely unknown and yet were very great people Rab Yaakov Hillel in Yerushalayim has a book about the Marrakesh Jewish cemetery in the city that I'm in right now and there's over 500 great tzaddikim buried there again the overwhelming majority of whom are completely unknown so how do we understand this paradox um, so I think, um, and this is my understanding, my analysis, and of course I could be wrong, I think that the answer to this is, is is one word, isolation, meaning the relative isolation of Moroccan Jewry over most of its history. Think about it. It's one of the only Jewish communities in the entire world that, A, was not in Europe during the rise of Europe and the, uh, the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century to world prominence and then demographic boom of the 19th century. So it was not in Europe. It wasn't part of the European Jewish world, and alternatively, it wasn't in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire never reached as far as Morocco, and that's very important. There are other exceptions, by the way, such as Yemenite Jews and other 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 uh, Jewish communities, but Morocco is still a notable exception. It was. It was never in the Ottoman Empire. The em- Ottoman Empire was the center of the Sephardic world um, after the expulsion from Spain, and it contained um, the whole Mediterranean basin and parts of Europe, so mainly in the Balkans, and parts of North Africa as far as it extended, and and the, that was the center. And there was commerce that went in within the empire, and a lot of exchange of of people and population moving and rabbis being hired from one community to the other because it was all within the Ottoman Empire. Whereas Morocco is nestled at the end of the continent on the Atlantic Ocean, much of the community is not even on the coast. It's in the desert. Berber villages in the south, excuse me, or in the Atlas Mountains high up away, cut off and isolated from the rest of the Jewish world. This isolation on one hand preserved the heritage and enriched the inner world and culture, and and, and when you mention culture and Moroccan Jewry, then of course you have to talk about the food, because food is very, very important to Moroccan Jewish culture, and perhaps I'll have an opportunity to speak about that another time, and the unique customs of Moroccan Jews and Israel, it's, it's almost the national holiday, the Mimuna, right after Pesach, that is a custom that originates from Moroccan Jews, of getting together, families and friends and neighbors, and and, uh, and having the first meal after Pesach together with each other is a sign of trust and and, uh, and togetherness and whatever. And there's a, also, there's what to elaborate on the custom of Mimuna and, uh, and many other unique customs of Moroccan Jewry. So this this heritage and this world, the spiritual world and, and the Torah world of, of Moroccan Jewry is enriched by this isolation because they develop and with without any external influence. But on the on the other hand it made them relatively unknown and until recently uh, until recently and uh, beyond the confines of their uh, confines of their own uh, community it doesn't mean that it was all dandy that they just sat there quietly and it was all nice for them they had some pretty rough times as well um, not just heavy taxes and non-equal rights which was fairly typical for all uh, Jews living on Muslim lands in Muslim society. All non-Muslims, Christians, Jews, and any other religious minorities had what was called the Dimi status, um, which is basically second-class citizenship. They were tolerated, they had privileges, they, they, they had to pay tax, special taxes, they didn't have equal rights, and certain judicial um, and legal aspects of it. Um, so that, of course, was, was, com- was a common denominator in the entire Muslim world. It also wasn't because they had to reside in Melaz, Melach, Melachs, uh which is a Jewish quarter, kind of like, a, like the equivalent of, of the Jewish ghetto in, uh, in pre-emancipation Europe, um, starting in Venice in the 1500s and later on it was in other places, mainly in Central Europe. Um, so the, uh, the Moroccan equivalent to that was the Mellah and um that was definitely a distinctive feature of Moroccan jewry um, that they were they had to reside in the Jewish quarter in the melah um, but that was only in certain cities and it was in more modern times it it started in in isolated cities in in the sixteenth century, but it only became more common and in, 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 in it was only required. In many more Moroccan cities by the government uh, um, to, to establish these Jewish quarters from 19th century and on so that wasn't and also that the, the, it wasn't that terrible in the Melech it wasn't like a squalid it wasn't that terrible it wasn't overcrowded at some point and and it, it did present uh, certain challenges but that wasn't only it. There were some actual terrible times for Moroccan Jewry that they sustained over the century. There was pogroms, there was massacres, there were expulsions, there was even near extermination at several junctures in the history of Jewish Morocco. Interestingly enough, if we go again back to medieval times, um, the Ibn Ezra, Abraham Ibn Ezra wrote a kina that was to be recited on Tisha B'av about the extermination of Moroccan Jewry during his time that he had heard about it. He was a traveler, the Ibn Ezra and Fascinating life. He himself, and he was all over. So he um, r- related to this terrible tragedy that happened during his time. That the um, the um, the local rulers in uh, Berber rulers in uh, in Morocco had had almost completely massacred the Jews of Fez, which was the main Jewish community in Morocco during the Middle Ages. Um, later on, we have the Rambam. Whose, whose family essentially originated from Morocco, from Fez. They had moved away from Morocco to Spain, to Cordoba, where the Rambam was born because of persecution. And then the persecution follows them to Cordoba, the Almohad dynasty, which was very, very uh, anti-non-Muslim infidels, and they forcibly converted them. And the Rambam's family, when he was a child, they go into exile, they leave Cordoba, and several years later, they arrive back in Fez. And the Almohads are in charge and they're forced, they're, everyone's forced them to, converge, to convert to Islam. The Rambam described how he had to spend time in hiding, hiding for his life, for his religion. And he, uh, he, he, um, uh, he spent several years in Fez. During that time, he also wrote his famous uh, commentary on the Mishnah, the Pirush HaMishnayas of the Rambam. He wrote it in Arabic, is later, it was later translated, but he spends several years, it seems, uh, or quite a significant amount of time in hiding, literally living in hiding, um, so to escape persecution. He wrote at that, that time his Igeres Hashmad, his letter to the Jewish community in regards, possibly maybe Igeres Kiddush Hashem. There's a couple of different letters. We're not sure exactly when he wrote one. Um, um, he he wrote about in regards to uh, the halachic. Uh, Challenges in regards to conversion, or at least to to, to an, ex, an external form of, of conversion to Islam, uh, paying lip service to it and secretly keeping uh, tenets of uh, Judaism, and and the whole whole thing. That's it's during this time that he writes that and grapples with the issue because he himself was experiencing this uh, this persecution. But, so again, isolation doesn't mean that everything was was dandy. There were good times, there were bad times, there was golden ages, there was very good times uh, in fact it was more good times than bad, but still it, it had its ups and downs. But this isolation is perhaps best expressed through the life story of one of the great leaders of Moroccan jewry. Again, I'm spending most of the time this one, uh, on, on 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 medieval Jewish Morocco. We could, of course. Spend many more episodes if we wanted to, to have a whole series on Moroccan Jewry, on modern Jewish Morocco, and the French colonialism, and 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 then and the uh, and Moroccan Jewry during the Holocaust, which is an interesting story. Um, the Moroccan emigration, the emigration, the Jewish the Jews of Morocco emigrated from their homeland in the twentieth in the after in the nineteen fifties and sixties, um, and then they and they left. Um, there's almost no Jews living in Morocco today, so that's a whole story also. But uh, for now, I'm sticking uh, to the Middle Ages. So again, this isolation is perhaps expressed best through the life story of one of the great leaders of Moroccan Jewry in the 12th century, whose gravesite up in the gorgeous Atlas Mountains we trek to today. And his name was Rabbi David Umosheh, Very interesting name also. In isolation, this person, this 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 Torah leader... He's isolated in every way. Isolated where he lived and passed away in Morocco, um, uh, far away from his family, from his home. He, had, he was not Moroccan. He had come from Yerushalayim to raise funds as a Shadar, as a shluchah on, on behalf of the Yerushalayim Jewish community. In the 12th century, that was already going on. We usually associate the occupation of the Shadar with more modern times uh, in the 16th century and on. Um, But in the 12th century, it already existed. And so he is isolated. Where where he's buried is in the middle of nowhere. Where he lived was in the middle of nowhere. These little tiny villages way up in the mountains in the south of the country, near the Sahara Desert, literally in the middle of nowhere. So that's isolated. And like I said, he wasn't even Moroccan. He He was from Yerushalayim. Um, and he was completely unknown outside of Moroccan Jewry until recently. Now he's now there are many people who have heard of him, but yet at the same time he was such a great Torah and community leader. Um, he passed away in 1171. We don't know till today if he was Ashkenazi or Sephardic. Apparently, in the 12th century, it didn't matter that much. So that's why it was <laughs> perhaps that's why it wasn't recorded for posterity. But he comes ostensibly to fundraise, and he does, at some point, he does a career switch. He sees a new calling for himself, because he sees that there's a dearth of rabbinic leadership in these villages that he had been chanced upon in, in the Atlas Mountains at the time, these Berber villages where the Jews were living. And he said he, he devoted himself to the people, and he, be, he, he started giving uh, you know, speeches and lectures and drushes, and he was very popular, and he became something of a miracle worker as well. He was definitely a Kabbalist and a mystic, and uh, he was helping people. He was fathering them and teaching them and, 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 and guiding them, and, and, and also, and as, as a miracle worker, helping them with, uh, with, with, with whatever challenges they were facing. Um, so he decides to stay. Um, And uh, it also was difficult. Travel was difficult. It was hard to get back. And there was all kinds of other external factors as well. Um, And and then an epidemic breaks out. Um, An epidemic, which we're we're familiar with what what that is today. And it's spreading. And it's causing a high death rate. And it's threatening to decimate both the Jewish and non-Jewish communities, obviously, in the area. And he makes a decision, which is... It's hard to even comprehend this type of decision, but this was his own responsibility. And he asked, he beseeched God, so to speak, to give his own, to take his own life as an atonement, as it be, as he is a righteous Torah leader, as it would atone for the entire community, his death, and therefore Hashem should take him in lieu of what the epidemic would, would, would take a, as a toll of life uh, throughout those villages. Uh, so he asked that his own life be taken. And, uh, and, and he passed away, and he's buried in this, in this, in this area. Um, so this is a story of leadership and, and sacrifice. And he was a great Torah scholar and, and influential. And here you have an incredible leader, um, a communal leader, Torah leader, in every respect, in every way, with an amazing life story. And yet he's completely unknown. In fact, just to make it even more interesting... He had come from Yerushalayim accompanied by his gabbai. Uh, we know a lot about gabbais who accompany great Torah leaders. His Gabai, though, seems to be unique, and I don't know anyone who has a Gabai like this today. His Gabai was an Arab, a non-Jew. That was his. Uh, that was the one who accompanied him and took care of his appointments and everything. So this Arab was the one who witnessed his his death and helped him, and, and, and did, you know did, did all. The, with him and whatever, and his last requests and, and and all that stuff. And then he went and informed the community. It was an Arab Shabbos, it was Friday, and he went and informed the community what had happened, and they didn't believe him, and the rabbi of that town had a dream, and they came to him, whatever, a whole Agansa as we say. Actually, I don't know if we would say that in Morocco. But, um, he, uh, but, but this Arab that plays a role in Jewish history as the gabbai of one of the great Torah leaders of Morocco. He was a Yerushalayim Arab. He wasn't a local Berber, uh, uh, Moroccan Arab, which would perhaps be more understandable, because the Berbers and the Jews always got along, um, pretty much always, and rare exceptions. Um, So, but he was an Arab from Yerushalayim. We, We could even call him a Palestinian to a certain extent, right? And recently, there's always been in the news this story. Could there be coexistence? Could there not be coexistence? And and the, there should be, there shouldn't be, and everyone has an opinion. It seems like in the 12th century, if an Arab gabai, uh, could be a, a gabbai to uh, the great Torah leader, Rabbi David Moshe, that perhaps coexistence was possible. Either way, this isolation of Moroccan Jewry lasted pretty much until the late 19th century, early 20th even, with the advent of French colonialism, French rule. The French rule of Morocco completely transformed uh, Moroccan Jewry. Uh, decisive influence till today, it's uh, felt, and uh, I think we'll save that for uh, another time. We'll definitely want to have more installments on Moroccan Jewry, or French colonialism, and and uh, the development of Moroccan Jewry during the 20th century, and what was it like to be under Vichy France during the ho- during the war years, and and was there a Holocaust there? Was there not? And um, and then the ultimate. Uh, emigration from Morocco and and how that all happened. So this was uh, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures. Of course, today's sponsor, Legacy Judaica. Check out the auction and you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites and Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites and I hope you enjoyed.